Go to overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash online therapy to get 20% off your first month of cognitive behavioral therapy with weekly sessions online with a therapist in addition to worksheets, a journal, meditation and yoga videos and unlimited messaging. There's strong evidence that CBT can help people who hoard and accessing therapy online can be affordable and accessible. Find out more and get your discount at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash online therapy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Welcome to the Overcome Compulsive Hoarding with That Hoarder podcast. I am drowning in stuff and trying to find a way out. Listen as I explore the issues and delve deep as somebody profoundly affected by hoarding disorder. Find out more, including links to subscribe to the podcast and all of my social media at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk. Finally, I am not a doctor. I am just a hoarder doing her best. So do seek professional support if and when you need it. So I am here with Dr. Jan Eppingstall, a counsellor in Australia who specialises in working with people who hoard. She also has a PhD in hoarding. So she is the perfect person to invite onto the podcast and pick her brains. Jan, how are you? Excellent. Thank you. And I'm very happy to be here. Thank you very much. This is episode 99. Wow. I know. My God. I know. It's it's wild. So today we are looking at why people who hoard hoard in the sense of why is it stuff that people end up fixating on when it could be any number of things. So it's pretty clear that if you look at people who hoard, there is often a vast amount of trauma and loss in their lives. And so on the one hand, I think, of course we hoard when I hear people's stories. But I've always been fascinated by why we hoard as opposed to something else. Why do we hoard rather than drink or drive too fast or become bullies? So that's what we are looking at today. So Jan, what is it about stuff that makes it the addiction of choice for people who hoard? Yeah, it's so interesting. I've asked myself this and hope to find the answer through my research. And like so much in psychology and human nature, the answer is 
complicated. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's just complicated. But I do think that because our stuff defines us to some extent, we tend to display evidence of our personalities through it, like books denote intelligence or perhaps open-mindedness or creativity, for example. And some people, you know, the trophies and ribbons from past triumphs when we were kids kind of shows that we are good at something at some point. Um, But the ambivalence, we've talked about this before, about the ambivalent sense of self seen in hoarding and the inability to kind of be decisive about who we are and therefore we own, and it feeds into this. So people who know who they are can quickly identify if they're the type of person to wear flashy clothes or ostentatious eyewear or whatever. They kind of go, this is me. I know that that's what I want to wear or that's how I want to be perceived. But if you're not clear on who you are and haven't done that work to find out, you kind of are likely to want the stuff so you can be a different person until you feel kind of like one clicks into place. I was recently talking to a client about this, about the true self, you know, their true self, and it raised this exact point. They were describing being a different version of themselves with almost everyone in their life. So every single relationship was kind of this you know, she was a different person. No one knew their true self because, you know, they were worried, oh, I might disappoint. I might be a disappointment to someone. I might not live up to the person's expectations. So feeling that need to compartmentalise relationships without allowing them to kind of mingle led this sort of sense of ambivalence, uh, ambivalent sense of self. But for me as a therapist, the key to why stuff is the the source or the um, center of someone's addiction? It's the function of those of saving and acquiring the items. What? Why do we do that? What What do we use them for? So, common themes include things like avoiding feelings of guilt, remorse, or shame, um, feeling incomplete or unsafe, perhaps demonstrating one's ability to follow the rules, the shoulds, the musts in our lives. <laughs> So keeping things that, well, I should have that, so therefore I can't throw it out. Another one which I find reasonably often with the older generation is the reminder of the golden years when we felt when we last felt happy and alive, wanting to keep that um, concept of ourselves tends to be physical objects even as evidence of the pain and hurt we've once suffered even want to keep reference to that because it gives us a sense, well, I've I've come through that. Yeah, it validates I don't know, it. Validates that it happened, right? <laughs> exactly. But alcohol and drugs kind of dull the pain and they're an escape for a short time. You know, gambling gives a person a chance to dream of that freedom if they won the money and then a dopamine hit when they win. But to come back to that question of why stuff is the addiction of choice for people who hoard, I think there's a couple of things that are factors that are relevant. So first, it's the instinctual nature of hoarding, stockpiling, you know, for times of scarcity. It's in our DNA. We're animals after all. So when we feel stressed or uncertain about what the future holds, we prepare for the worst. So it's kind of logical that we would do that. 
And secondly, it's that kind of inability to avoid engaging with stuff. It's like food. We need it to survive. So we're unable to kind of avoid coming in contact with it, with those temptations. You know, they're put under our nose constantly by the capitalist machine. So it takes a lot of effort to, you know, to hold back on those temptations. And sometimes and often we just give in to it. So I think those are kind of a couple of the things that we can't really avoid about stuff. Um, And I do really feel like in 2023, a lot of people have a lot of stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I feel like COVID and that initial stockpiling at the start will have stuck around for some people. Told you so, kind of, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> See, I said that was going to happen. Um, and also, you do, you just, I think even if you go to the supermarket now, even though we're not in any lockdowns, and you see that there's empty shelves, it is very um, anxiety-provoking because it is. Hang on, maybe it's happening again. Maybe there's something, maybe I won't be able to get it. Is there something I don't know? You know, or should I just, oh, I'll just get a few extra things just in case. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think it really has made it, made a, you know, had a big impact on people and their, you know, their sense of security around having that extra. There just seemed to be some evidence of people inheriting hoarding. If mm. a parent hoards, the child may grow up to hoard too. Do we know much about whether this is thought to be a learned thing or more of a genetic phenomenon? I feel like the answer to that helps us to answer why stuff a bit as well. Yeah, I think it does. Like the evidence does suggest that hoarding is more common amongst first degree relatives of people who hoard compared with non-hoarding controls. So that means, um, you know, parents or siblings, half siblings of you, if you have hoarding in the family. And it suggests that genetic factors account for about 50% of the uh, phenotypic variance in hoarding. So that kind of means, yeah, you've got a 50% chance if you've got a family member who hoards. There have been some gene-finding studies that have tentatively implicated particular regions on certain chromosomes. So like chromosomes 4, 5, 6, 14, 17 and 19. But at this stage, none of them have kind of been clearly implicated as susceptibility genes. And really with mental illness, we have never found a single, you know, a single gene that we can kind of um, attach onto and well, this is the gene that is creating this situation. Yeah. The other thing is there's also limitations to the studies that have been done around genetic predisposition because the subjects used were diagnosed with OCD or Tourette's rather than hoarding. Um, and as well, you know, kind of like that was a prime OCD and Tourette's were primary and then hoarding was secondary. Um, and they've also not replicated these findings. So there's been very little, you know, continued support for that genetic uh, predisposition. Yeah, I do think the short answer is no evidence of clear genetic link. Um, But that first degree relative, that is parent, sibling, half sibling having hoarding tendency, then, you know, you're more likely to suffer yourself. 
Um, initially, there was kind of hypotheses about hoarding uh, that it came from a life of scarcity or deprivation. That was kind of the theme that we that the researchers had initially. Um, and it was not found to be a factor. But since then, we've kind of begun to understand that epigenetic and transgenerational trauma exists. So where previous generations have suffered significant unspeakable trauma, such as Jews in World War One or any First Nations peoples across, across the globe, this can impact the expression of genes in subsequent generations. So the genes don't necessarily change as such, or there isn't one particular gene as such, but turning on and off of those genes can be changed through that engagement with environmental factors. So that's how the kind of, it's, it's nature via nurture, very much so. So you're susceptible and then how you're raised or how, how you interact with your environment will then express those genes. Yeah, that makes sense. From what I found when reading about this, attachment styles could play a role in why we get attached to physical items. Can you initially explain a bit about attachment theory and what it means in our lives? I can. Attachment theory is one of my kind of pets. Um, It was proposed by John Balby, he was an English psychologist, psychiatrist, and psychoanalyst who's a pretty um, pretty amazing guy. That's just greedy. Pick one. Isn't it? Pick one. You know, pick one. Um, and he was working in the field um, up until the 1990s. So he was, incre- he was an incredible guy. He witnessed this distress and anxiety experienced by babies when they were separated from their primary caregiver. Um, and he then spent his life studying the long-term impact of early separation on child or on a child's phys- uh, not physical psychological well-being. And this was a time we need to remember. This was a time when children who were ill were taken from their parents, yeah. placed in hospital with no visitors allowed or comfort given by nurses at all. Yeah. And if a child was distraught, they were left to cry it out. And the babies and young kids could be in the hospital for like months on end without any contact from their family and no physical touch, you know, except for the administration of um, medicines and the yeah. like. And it really was emotional and physical neglect at that at stage. Yeah. And he also researched the effect of children being removed from parents to the country for safety during the blitz. So he had this perfect kind of, um, you know, uh, natural experimental design that he could, um, yeah. he could without, use. Without having to take some babies and remove them for the sake of the experiment. <laughs> so lucky that, I mean, it's not lucky, but it's lucky yeah. in a way, you know, and well, we're lucky that he wanted to understand yeah. that yeah uh, because if if he hadn't have wanted to understand that we could have wasted that yeah. opportunity but it's not a, a not a it's not something we could ever do now yeah um <laughs> because ethics would yeah. <laughs> yeah no but he believed that humans evolved with this biological instinct to instinct to form strong enduring bonds with their primary care caregivers so from birth, we are the centre of our primary caregiver's emotional universe. 
and they tend to all of our needs and they help us manage our emotions, provide nourishment, stimulation and comfort. So that was his initial kind of like, we, we need to know that there's these strong enduring bonds. Now, his research was extended by Mary Ainsworth. She was a developmental psychologist. She extended Belby's research by developing the strange situation experiments, which then formed our understanding of the types of attachments that people can express. She was an, another amazing scholar. She began her undergraduate studies at the age of 16 Oof. at Toronto University. <laughs> Unreal. And one of the things she did, she did her PhD, she did her master's and then PhD like so quickly, so yeah. young. Amazing woman. One of the things she did was observe mother-infant interactions when she, she did a, a visit to Uganda, and this kind of formed the basis of her research. I really encourage you to have a read up on her career because her findings have had such a big impact on attachment um, theory. She did this stranger situation where she'd have children um, come into a room with some toys and there'd be this you know, um, someone that this ch little child had never met. They were usually around about 18 months old. The child would then be left. Mum would say, see you later, step out for a period of time. And then they would observe what that child did. And there was these quite distinct sort of behaviours that, right. um, that came about. And they found that secure attachment was evident when, you know, when kids would initially be a little upset if they were secure attached they'd usually be a little bit oh where's mum gone what's yeah. happening and then the person would kind of say oh yeah have, have a play with some toys and the kid would settle in and then yeah. when mum came back run and hug mum this is fabulous you know great mum's back um, but then there was some that was a secure attachment so that was you know in times of threat or need the child was able to seek out the caregiver for comfort and security and was kind of like a safe haven for them um, and acting as like a secure base to explore and gain new skills and they were beginning to understand that they were that they exist as separate from their caregiver. So at that 18-month stage, they're kind of a little bit of independence. And the secure ones, yeah, they got a little bit upset. But when the mother returned, happy reunion. But there are these other three types of attachment that uh, they Mary decided she would call insecure attachment. And one of those is if we experience unreliable or inconsistent interactions with our attachment figure, which is usually our mother, even, even to this day, one may exhibit anxious attachment. So you identify that by clingy or controlling or proximity-seeking behaviours. So that child in a stranger situation would scream and cry the entire time, probably not take any notice of toys, would be at yeah. the door, you know, waiting for mum to come. The next type would be a child who had repeated rejection or punishment by their attachment figures, and that would lead to this avoidant attachment. And this is like a deactivation of the attachment system, evidenced by a defensive behaviour and a denial of need for close relationships or support. So this kid, the mum would leave, the kid would take no notice, 
go and play with the toys. Mum would return and child would take no notice of mum. In yeah. fact, would turn away perhaps from mum and just pretend like, oh, I don't, oh you're back? Oh, whatever. <laughs> so that's your avoidant kind of I'm, I, I can look after myself. I know that I don't need anyone type of individual. There's a third type of insecure attachment, which is known as disorganised. Now, this is often, you know, this often occurs in homes where there's like domestic violence, postpartum depression, perhaps drug and alcohol misuse or poverty. Mental illness is a big one. Um, anything that leads primary caregivers to be er erratic and unpredictable in their care. Yeah. So these kids would be maybe a bit dazed or confused or sort of er erratically... Um, they might one minute be clingy and then next minute be avoidant and they can actually be fearful of their caregiver because they're not really not sure mum might change with the wind. So I need to be prepared. And I think this attachment um, to our primary caregivers, um, we don't necessarily realise the extent that how we were mothered impacts our lives until we reflect on our upbringing even when we compare it with others, I guess, you know, you have chats with people and you kind of go, oh, wow, oh, you had a completely different life to me. It's kind of when you start having sleepovers at friends' houses, I think, is a big like, oh, that's interesting. That happens. Oh, and then okay, again, oh. when you leave home, I think, and maybe live, you know, if your house share, something like that, I think you then start to go, oh, not everybody does that or yeah you know. exactly and it can be quite yeah it, it it can be quite destabilizing if you kind of haven't thought about it before yeah. but you know far from being under our control the way you know our primary caregiver responded to our needs from the moment we were born you know it impacts how we treat those closest to us now and our relationship with our primary caregiver is like a template and we use that for all future relationships, romantic, familial. We just kind of use that template and stick it on top and we go, well, that's how, how people behave together. But, you know, attachment insecurity, although it doesn't cause psychopathology, it has been linked empirically with various forms generally related to like negative thoughts about your self-worth, shame, unstable identity, um, which reflects back on what we were talking about before. And it doesn't, it's not sufficient to cause mental illness, but what it does do is significantly reduce a person's available psychological resources in challenging circumstances. And if we grew up in a home where someone who hoards, like this is, um, I believe, analogous to an attachment trauma and it could lead to disorganised attachment, definitely. I think that would be highly likely if you grew up in a significantly hoarded home yourself. Yeah. So when, when something goes wrong, you don't have the reserves that another person might have to be resilient in that situation necessarily. Exactly. And you kind of go, oh, oh, right, now I'm on my own. How did I deal with that before? Well, there was either someone there to take the pain away immediately 
or there was no one there <laughs> to take the pain away, or there was someone who was sometimes there and sometimes yeah. not there. <laughs> exactly. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. The listener voicemail segment has a monthly theme to help you think of something to say. So for July, the question to answer is, what is a lesson you've learned recently? Maybe you've learned that avoiding certain shops helps you to keep your acquiring under control, or that the world doesn't end if you run out of something you thought you needed. This is your opportunity to share your learnings with us. Have your say with your voice. If you want to record a voice message to me to potentially play on a future podcast episode, go to overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash voicemail and leave a message. The topic for July is a lesson you've learned recently. Let us know what you're thinking at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash voicemail. So what do attachment styles have to do with both emotion regulation and possessions. Yeah, all types of insecure attachment will negatively impact our ability to manage our emotions. So if we're not attended to appropriately and kind of taught to self-soothe in our early years, birth to two years, our ability to express and manage our emotional landscape will be impaired significantly. We kind of look to that primary caregiver and our relationship with them as that template, as I said before. And if we haven't been attended to properly, maybe we've had an over-involved caregiver who kind of helicopters around us and puts us in a padded suit to go to the playground and kind of fixes everything for us, then we're unprepared to kind of manage any strong emotions when we mature. Or we might have had an under-involved caregiver who kind of ignores us, pays no attention to our emotions and neglects our needs. So, or confusingly different ones on different days. <laughs> exactly. And you're going, hang on, this the rules were this yesterday and now the yeah. rules are different today. And how come I thought I was really focused? I thought I knew what was going on, but now I don't. And that leads to all sorts of, um, you know, uh, people-pleasing behaviours and all sorts of kind of masking of your emotions. Yeah, we do. We just get confused. And we're constantly vigilant, paying extremely close attention to what 
the emotions, you know, what other people's emotions are and even helping them manage their emotions. You know, it's okay, you know, I'm sorry I asked you that. I'll I'll just, you know, I, I help, I'll fix it, whatever. Um, and then we push our own emotions down <laughs> through the use of coping mechanisms in order to just avoid any of those um, internal kind of experiences. So if we haven't got that person to go to, we're either we've got someone who smothers us or we've got someone who ignores us or we've got that kind of inconsistent person, we might use something like a toy or a teddy bear or a blanket or things in our room to kind of manage our emotions when we feel shame or rejection. And that could eventually, I mean, my hypothesis is it might end up in this excessive attachment to our belongings, particularly when we love sort of cute, cuddly things or, you know, (laughs) sweet things. I really do feel that there's that necessity, you know, that there's this link back to um, a childhood of maybe missing out on some of that. Um, And then avoidant attachment might encourage people to use possessions to express, um, like to gain power over others or impress people or make connections or feel self-confident. So it depends on what type of of insecurity you have, but that's our way of managing ourselves when we haven't learnt how to do that in our early relationships. There's a tweet I see periodically that says something like, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but you're not an empath. You just grew up in a home where in order to survive, you had to constantly be aware of the minute by minute emotions of the people around you. Exactly. And you take that with you. You end up going moving into relationships that are the yeah. same because you feel comfortable. I know what to expect. I know that I can handle it because I've handled it before. What you can't handle is one, when someone's a caring, yeah. um, supportive individual and you're going, hang on what a minute. Do, what do I do with this? <laughs> what do I do with this? You're telling me you just want to listen to me? <laughs> you mean that seems crazy you're not going to give me your opinion and you're not gonna you know burst out crying what and and they will do the same tomorrow and the day after and the day after that (laughs) what's going on there and they will always be there (laughs) they will always be there and they will always be happy to listen without judgment and you're like wow yeah this what am i this planet is this the right planet yeah, it's very, it's, 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 yeah, it's a very interesting kind of concept. And it's worth kind of, it's worth thinking through how, how you were parented. Because it's not their fault, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a reality that will be impacting how you relate to other people, whether yeah. they be romantic relationships or whether it's other family members for the rest of your life. Or indeed your stuff. Yeah, or indeed your stuff. <laughs> so in one of your weekly emails, you, which I always recommend people subscribe to, and this kind of insight is why. So in one of your <laughs> weekly emails, you said, we are using our belongings to forge connections and regulate our emotions 
because our stuff is less frustrating or disappointing and more reliable than the people in our lives. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so this, there was this experimental research done that showed people demonstrated an increase in attachment to inanimate objects when those that were close to them seemed unreliable. So they did this little experiment where they made this made the person feel like, you know, their partner or their mother or whatever was unreliable. And they then increased their attachment to inanimate objects. And my early research into hoarding, loneliness and adult attachment found that like the insecurely attached and lonely were more likely to report hoarding behaviours. So further, further, I found that those with insecure adult relationship attachments were more lonely and believed objects represented their identity and their connections to the world. Um, and were more likely to hoard um, possessions. So that's kind of at the evidence there that we we use our belongings at way to forge connections, and we're connecting possibly with our past, other people's past, our history. Sometimes we use our possessions as a way to um, reconnect with people. I found this thing that I want to give to. Uh, someone that I love, but I don't have any other, ex- I don't have an excuse, so I'll find something yeah. that will bring us together. So that gift giving sort of um, obsession that we often have as hoarders. Yeah. Um, and that our stuff doesn't argue. It doesn't disappoint us. It's there. You know, it's always there. My books will never leave me. They will never leave you and they're never going to um, kick up a fuss if you, you know, if if you do something that they don't like. If you come home drunk or. <laughs> exactly. If you come home drunk or, you know, you um, don't put the toilet seat down, they're not going to get angry with you. But humans are unfortunately. Human. Not human and not reliable <laughs> at all. In most instances. Yeah, so that's where our the kind of compensatory, um, the compensatory sort of theory of hoarding and possessions is that they're replacing this attachment that we that we're missing from um, our relationships. But we found in the research that our possessions aren't really very good at being human substitutes like they're not really the best because they're not you know they don't interact quite as well as a human but we are wired for a connection so that might be why we you know we do anthropomorphize them we do you know give our cars names and we do sit and talk with our stuffed toy that we had from a child we just can't help seeking belonging, even if it's from a stuffed toy. We just, that's just how we're wired. And could there be something about, I love this teddy bear. It's never going to leave me. It doesn't challenge me. It's not quite enough, but maybe three teddy bears will be. And <laughs> then it's good and it fulfills it, but it's not quite enough. So maybe I need 10. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I do think I do. I do. I yes, more is better. Like oh, surely more will 
make everything go away. And then after you've got 50, you go, oh, didn't really work, did it? <laughs> now how do I get rid of 50? Yeah, because they're all my friends and they're all, <laughs> They're yeah. all my friends. Yeah. They really are. And I remember when I bought them and I remember, you know, how I felt when I bought them. And I couldn't possibly let them go because then I would be abandoning them like I was abandoned or like, you know. So what is a transitional object and what is transitional object attachment? Ah, so this was this is a theory that was developed by um, Winnicott, who was a contemporary of Balby in the early to mid 20th century. And he described a, a transitional object as that first treasured possession that a child finds soothing and comforting and has been considered to kind of stand for the primary caregiver in which most cases this is the child's mum. Now, for my children, both of my boys, the thing that became that transitional object was the muslin that they were wrapped in. Yeah. Every time they were fed, every time they were put to bed, it was yeah. the muslin they were wrapped in. So that became that treasured object because they it kind of stood in for me when I wasn't in the room. It probably kind of smelt a little bit like me and it was kind of soft and mum's kind of soft. So they made that kind of um, connection. Now, it's not a replacement for the mother. The idea is that it's an intermediary between you know, the internal and external reality for the infant, that it's like a path or a step towards independence from the mother. So that's why it works when you drop your child off at childcare, for example, that they've got that special object. Have you got your teddy? Have you, yeah, yeah. Have you got your teddy? Have you got your cat? Have you got your blankie? And they will be able to have a nap and know that they've got those two objects. And it is really, okay, I'm away from mum, but I know that I can use that to kind of self-soothe and connect and relax. Yeah. And it, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I had Pilly. I had Pilly. I lost Pilly in a hotel room and Pilly was never to be seen again. So that was a bit of a shame. But, um, you know, both my, both my boys still have their blankies, I think. I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe. I won't ask them. They'll be embarrassed. They're a bit too old now for me to go, where's blankie? When they're going out on a date. Don't, <laughs> <laughs> no, don't forget blankie. Oh, my goodness. Um, but transitional object, object attachment is related. So learning theory kind of suggests that the physical similarities between that soft object and mother kind of leads it to become, this is word salad, but a discriminant stimulus and conditioned reinforcer. So it's kind of like a learning, so kind of Pavlovian kind of, you know, conditioning. But what I thought, there was some really interesting research done in the early 2000s where um, they were trying to work out whether the soft object 
the blankie or whatever, was a compensation for unmet attachment needs. And they were trying to investigate whether the security of the attachment to the mother was related to that transitional object attachment to a blanket um, and how the kids use that object in novel situations. So sort of stranger, stranger situation again. Um, But they found that the actual attachment to the object and the attachment to the mother developed independently, which makes sense. So it wasn't a substitute. Again, they, they, they actually did find that it was that transition. It was a transitional object. But they did find that insecurely and securely attached toddlers use them in different ways. Oh, interesting. Uh, so insecure toddlers who had this attachment to a blanket would use the blanket instead of seeking out their mum in novel environments. So it offered some comfort to the insecurely attached. So it was it was like a symbol of the union, but the the securely attached kids didn't didn't need it. You know, they yeah. didn't use it because they didn't have they didn't have that anxiety around it. You know, I guess it was possible that they didn't weren't sure that they were going to receive the appropriate comfort or reassurance so they didn't want to be rejected or invalidated or whatever so they're like I'll just use that blanket it's a safe option um and you know maybe more reliable and consistent as we've just hypothesized I'm not sure that's the inference the uh um the researchers were kind of making but yeah it did not impact the securely attached toddlers and they sort out their mums regardless <laughs> of whether they had that attachment or not to that object so they were much more confident and secure and happy in that relationship which makes complete sense but i did think it was quite an interesting um observation so i was really interested to read that transitional objects are not a universal phenomenon they're very much a western thing what significance does that have yeah I'm not an expert on parenting but I think typically like western child rearing involves you know we we separate from our child immediately after birth don't we we kind of go we sleep in a separate sometimes we have the baby in the room um often we put the baby in a different room to sleep from day one you know, and we're kind of keen to raise these independent individuals who can manage their emotions in all situations and not look, you know, you've got to be self-reliant. And so there's that, you know, requirement for the child to individuate versus fitting in and conforming, which happens in more collectivist cultures like, you know, in Japan, um, parts of Asia, that sort of thing. So I think it's that. I think really it's that... um, you know, you need to be able to be independent and children aren't really capable of that, (laughs) to be quite fair. You know, they're just not developed to that point. So there's this need for this transitional um, object to assist them in that. But I don't know enough about the other, the comparisons, but I do know that it was only really found in Western cultures uh, or in Westernised cultures. Um, and I do think it is that we want them to be individual from word go. Yeah. So, like, I don't want to, I don't want to get them to sleep. Otherwise, the, uh, the phrase is always, I'm creating a rod for my own back. 
I'm back. That's always the phrase. If I, if they rely on me to rock them to sleep, they will never get to sleep themselves. So from day one, I'm putting them down and their job is to self-soothe and get themselves to sleep. That's I a know. lot to ask of a new baby. I agree. They're so tiny. You just think, oh, how can I just let you cry? I just couldn't. I couldn't do it. I could not do it. I really, it was just, it was heartbreaking. And, you know, when you're a mum, that sound of the baby crying is visceral. It is. It just makes your heart kind of clench and you feel physically ill. And I had a crier. The first one was a, a screamer. And when he would scream, I would just, my whole body would just be, you know, um, a bundle of nerves. So picking him up and cuddling him, if it worked, if it stopped him crying, well, then we were both, you know, we were both calm and relaxed. So it made sense. But yes, that, oh, if I don't um, get them to to self-soothe and sleep on their own, then I'll never get them to do that, which I don't, know, I don't agree, but... I, I think it is a very Western um, Dr. Spock kind of, you know, um, yes. throwback from that era too, you know. We we had Dr. Spock's book in our house and I, I remember I read some of it. I was a strange child and I remember the bit of advice I remember from it um, was in order to get your child to eat vegetables – what you do is you serve dessert first and say, if you're good and eat all of your dessert, you can have some broccoli. And that's the way to get your child excited about food. And I expect that works in one child in a thousand. <laughs> I just called I just called broccoli trees and that worked. Uh, and I called um, Brussels sprouts tiny cabbages. That worked. They both, well, I lie. One of them doesn't eat them. The other one loves them. Brussels sprouts are horrible. Oh, I'm on the side of on. the one who doesn't eat them. I know someone I who, them. until their kid started school, they'd managed to convince him that raisins were sweets. Oh. So if, if you could, you can have some sweets. And he would be like, oh, and they'd give him raisins. And he thought that was the best thing. And then he started school and his <laughs> friends were like, they're not sweets. <laughs> That's fruit. <laughs> oh, God. Ah, oh, the things we do to our children. <laughs> there was some research around, like, the fit between – this was done in a Western um, sample. So mums who saw themselves as more kind of traditional, strict or controlling were more likely to have those strong children with strong object attachments. So I'm guessing, you know, there's more demands on that child to yeah. sit over there quietly, you know, here's your dummy, here's your blankie, whatever. And inflexible mums were more likely to kind of encourage that object attachment, which makes sense again, you know, you know, they rely, they, they make sure that they're relying less on their mother for that emotional support and regulation. Um, and they use their, like you like you were saying before, use it as a stress management tool. So that's yeah. my tool. And when I get it, then I immediately calm down. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting too, which mirrors what I've, you know, what I've observed. And I think it's important to say, that what we're talking about is not that phenomenon 
where everything is the mother's fault. It's not that no. thing where whatever somebody does, somebody will say, I blame the mother. What it is, and correct me if this is wrong, but what it is, it's about the most significant early attachment. And in most cases, that just is the mother. And that is exactly it. Um, the other thing that uh, Winnicott was well known for was the good enough mother theory. So his theory was um, it's what, you know, being there, we all make mistakes. We don't have to be perfect. That is never the um, yeah. the aim of parenting. But if you're there and you're good enough, which means you're not doing anything negative harmful, yeah. harmful um, then this is going to be, you know, that, that that's what the child needs. It just needs you there. And you will make mistakes. My goodness. We all make mistakes in all areas of our lives. And I think the most important thing to learn is how to repair, how to come back from that, how to, get, how to admit you were wrong, even to your children. I mean, parents in my day would never say they were wrong. Never. They would back themselves to the ends of the earth. And I say quite often, I'm not, I'm, I made a mistake. I love that my friends who are kids will do that and say, I'm, I'm sorry I shouted, I panicked or I was really angry, but I understand it's really upsetting for you and I'm sorry about that. And it, every time I witness that, it blows my mind because as you say, you know, my parents' generation, your parents' generation, that was not part of the way things worked. No, they were right. And they, you know, and they would back it. They would back it. They went, no, that's not happening. And I've done it numerous times where I've kind of said no to something and then I've gone away and thought about it. Or I've yeah. said yes to something and I've gone away and thought about it. And I've said, you know what, for these reasons, I've decided to change my mind and knows the answer. And, you know, they've always taken it very well. You know, they might get a yeah. bit cranky initially and then they'll say, you know what, I thought about it and you were right. I'm glad I didn't, you know, do that. I kind of think if parents are modelling, this is how you say sorry and admit that you made a mistake or broke something, then surely the kid is then also freer to say, sorry, mum, rather than dig their heels in when exactly. something goes wrong for them. Yeah, or deny that they ever did anything wrong yeah. and then, you know, and then you you lack transparency in the relationship and everything just becomes, you know, transactional when you deal with your parent. You, it's not what we want. We want them to come to us um, when they do need something. We don't want them to go outside of our relationship to find, you know, answers yeah. when we're the ones that can give them a considered answer. So stepping outside of kind of deep psychology for a minute, we also can't ignore that we live in a world that is constantly screaming to us about how much better our life will be if we just buy this, that and the other. Is there any evidence that people who hoard are more susceptible to this kind of messaging? This is actually something I wanted to get your opinion on too. Do you think that's the case? Like, do you think that, you know, you're more susceptible to messaging or about the same as everybody else? I wonder whether 
we might see that messaging as kind of permission for something we already want to do. Um, that's, that's Yeah, that's interesting, yeah. I like, I don't know for sure, but I think, you know, sometimes you need someone's, one of my friends said, I'm great to go charity shopping with because whenever she picks something up, I'm always like, oh, you've got to get that. And um, I'm just <laughs> like, I'm her permission from start to finish. <laughs> <laughs> buy everything she likes and um sometimes we do look for permission for something that we definitely want um yeah and I wonder whether we then use marketing or influencers or whatever as as that permission yeah I mean there's very little around this topic there's quite a bit around attachment style and consumer behavior there's quite Mm. a bit around that which is quite interesting but I think these messages that grab us and tell us will be better you know (laughs) if we buy some shiny doodad um I think it leads all of us to be irresponsible consumers in general and the majority of us are kind of careless with our possessions and we cast them aside you know, we cast aside that old thing, which probably isn't old to most people for some shiny new model. And I think often the the the, the, the abhorrence of waste and the concern, um, you know, that environmental pr- protectionism kind of perfectionism and protectionism rises up in orders and they want to save everything because some horrible person threw it out. Yeah. So it's kind of... In a roundabout way, you know, everybody is susceptible to those messages, but some of us are just able to let go real easy because something new's come into our lives. Whereas, you know, the shame and the and the guilt around being irresponsible consumers kind of, <laughs> you know, eats yeah. you up more than it than it probably eats up others. Yeah, because. It's undeniable that our generation buys multiples more than our grandparents' generation bought. And in order for that to be livable, things need to be going out as well as coming in. And if they're not, that's when it literally piles up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if we... (laughs) you know it happens it happens quite often I see it happening where one person will say oh I've just got this new thing I'm just going to get rid of that and the other person will go what really you can't but you only just got that you can't possibly and then oh I'll have it and I think to myself this is a this is a systemic problem (laughs) this is a system that is you know everything is geared to you know all the money is spent on getting us to consume more and more and more and how can we be attempting to make consumption sustainable when they're using their best minds to trick us into buying everything under the sun i remember years ago i needed a printer and i know (laughs) they are the worst (laughs) inventions in the world but anyway so I went to this was the old days so I went to a shop um, and (laughs) I was looking at the various printers and there was this 
only needed something really basic. And the most like basic printer cost it was it was like 30 pounds or something, which is about 50 US dollars. And the sales guy came over and he said the good thing about he could see that I was looking at the cheapest one. He said the good thing about that one is that it's cheaper to buy that printer that has ink included than it is to buy ink refills. So it's basically like a disposable printer. So when you run out of ink, you just buy a new one rather than buying refills, which cost more than the refills. And it blew my mind that that was built in. That was the way it was meant to be. And And it continues on to this day because I was only looking at them the other day to reconfirm to myself that it was a a scam. Yeah. And there they were sitting there so cheap. Yeah. And I'm thinking, how can we be doing this still? This has been going on. Printers are so, oh, they're incredibly infuriating. They just don't work. How has nobody invented a printer that speaks to the computer properly yet? Oh, tell me about it. Mine's kicked up a fuss now too, and I'm thinking about replacing it. I'm going, I have to get rid of that now, and no one's going to buy it from me. I mean, I, I have to pay someone to take it away. It's it's incredibly frustrating. And the number of printers I see in homes, you know, like more than one, because yeah. people have seen them on the side of the road and someone's put a big sticker on it saying still works. And they're like, and then they haven't found out that it costs them $80 for the um, cartridge. So it just yeah. sits there, you know, um, for months on end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but we're just, we're just, yeah, we're making it more difficult for ourselves and for everyone else um, as a society. We're just, it's, it's crazy. And when you visualize the landfill that all this stuff ends up in, it's <laughs> the vastness. I know there's not one landfill in the world, I know they're not all going to one place, <laughs> but even just your average cities dump or whatever it's called in different countries and that's just one city in the entire world and that's not to say we shouldn't throw things away no but it is to say we need to be careful about what we acquire in the first place yeah I mean the the letting go of the things that are in the home right now I mean they've already been produced they're already waste They've already been paid for, you know, they no longer have that value. But we really need to be much more vigilant about what we bring in because we know once it comes into our homes, regardless, regardless of whether, you know, you would identify yourself as a hoarder or not, it is so hard to get that object out. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's getting harder every day. It's getting harder to donate. It's getting harder to um, recycle. And I just feel like we need to just double check ourselves when we go and get looking for that little dopamine hit. Is there something else I could do 
that would, you know, could I call a friend or could I, you know, instead of buying that lipstick, you know, because that used to be my thing, I'll go and get some nail polish or some lipstick or whatever, you know, that's a cheap and, you know, ended up with a hundred bottles of yeah. um, nail polish and and a and hundred lipsticks that I never use. And they dry up and then, yeah. yeah. Uh, so it was like, oh, I just need a little pick me up. Yeah. I would have been better off ringing a friend or, you know, or going for a walk or doing something else, you know. Yeah. And it feels important to point out that a lot of people who do not have a problem exclusively with stuff, it's not like it's stuff or necessarily. Mm. A lot of us have other maladaptive coping mechanisms alongside it. I self-harmed for a long time. Others may have substance use disorder or, you know, even push themselves too hard at work or unhealthy relationships. It's not like it's one or the other because we're complex beings, right? Oh, exactly. And many of us, many of us struggle. Um, well, many of us have things that we use that we believe are acceptable as well yes. you know like the over exercising and the glass of glass of wine at the end of the day exactly a glass of wine every day or whatever it might be we kind of classify things as being um appropriate ways of coping and inappropriate or maladaptive and adaptive but the thing about uh stuff is that up to a point, it's acceptable, right? <laughs> up to a point, we feel like it's acceptable. Then once it gets to a certain tipping point, then we feel like we're being judged and, and it's too much. Um, and that's the hardest part about it because I tell you what, there are many, 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 many people out there who are on the border, you know, who are teetering on that tipping point and they may be feeling self-righteous. I would never go you know, that would never happen to me. And I can tell you right now, you know, you get some sort of an injury, you get, a, you have um, a loss where you're grieving, you um, maybe, you know, lose a job. Those little things happen and you tip over the edge and then you look around and say, how did I get here? And I have to remind people, this is not who you are. This is your circumstance. This is something that we need to work on. It's not the end. It's not, it's not the end of your life as you know it. It's something we need to work on. Um, and that's really hard because people want the, the shame they feel, they want to just shut down and go, well, this is, you know, this is obvious. It's obvious that I'm this um, terrible person for the way I'm living. It's like, seriously, those things that happened just tipped you over. It's like people say you're only ever three paychecks away from homelessness or something. <laughs> it's the same thing. If yeah. you have a tendency towards something and then somebody dies or mm. you get long COVID or you lose your job or anything that could be it's the tipping point isn't it it is yeah it is totally and that whole um idea of you know you're only three paychecks away um you know you're only one decision away from having a crappy life and you're only one decision away from having an amazing life it's like you know either way we're just you know we're all we're all um you know, we're all in that space, really, 
in one way or another with most things in our lives. And I, this may be a PhD of its own, but I wonder <laughs> whether there's something, because I know from listeners I'm not the only person with a history of self-harm. Mm. And think about self-harm and about hoarding is that it's kind of somebody feeling a lot of distress and then externalizing it, making it something, whether that's on the outside of your body or on the around you. And it's not necessarily about people seeing an expression of your distress, because quite often with both self-harm and hoarding, it's well hidden. So it's not about expressing it externally for people to see. But there is something about, I can't cope with this inside me. Let's make the chaos on the outside. Outside. Yeah, it's very interesting. I don't know. Mm. Um, it's, yeah, that's kind of an interesting concept. Because I do find that most that I come in contact with are very, that they are externalizers, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of their go-to. Yeah. And I can see how that, you know, and as you say, there are there is some um, you know, overlap with with self-harm, you know, with uh other sorts of um body dysmorphias, all those kinds of uh things. And I think, well, yeah, they're all kind of external, aren't they? They're some way of controlling what's happening inside, um, because you feel you can't handle it inside but if it's outside I can do something about it I can yeah. manage it somehow yeah mm. and also back to that thing about tipping point when I worked with um young people who self-harmed they almost without exception also had some degree of eating disorder and mm. what would happen would be one of them would be reasonably under control while the other one was out of control. And then, so they would be self-harming very severely, but eating. And then mm. they would manage to reduce their self-harming behaviours, but then couldn't eat. And so I'm thinking also, if you are drinking and almost hoarding, and then you start to get your drinking a bit under control, that mm. could also be a tipping point, couldn't it? Yeah, because you haven't found that adaptive yeah. coping mechanism. You've ju you're just constantly juggling the maladaptive one to another, you know. And I see that quite often. I do see that quite often. Um, and it's it's something. It, it's it's about coming um, to terms with that it, that there needs to be something else. There needs to be some other <laughs> other coping mechanism that you that you can. Um, you know, you can bring in to, to part those two things that are just one-upping, you know, up. it's just like a seesaw, man. It's, you know, it's really hard. And it's not great for your health, of course. I mean, all of these things are just very, you know, and that, and that can then impact on your energy levels, how well you're able to deal with all sorts of things in all areas of, of your life. I read a study the other day. They looked at older people who hoarded compared to older people who did not hoard and how mm. much more disabled 
mm. in a multitude of ways mm. the people who hoarded were. Mm. Yeah, the functional impact of, of hoarding yeah. on, on, on a person, you know, the, how disabled they are. It's just incredible. Yeah. And that's often it gets to that point. It gets beyond that tipping point and then, you know, you look for help. And I just would love people to seek out help if they can kind of before they get to that point because, um, and I know that it's so shame shaming to invite someone into your home, but really like we've seen, every, we've seen it all and we know, um, we know, we understand the underlying, you know, um, in, in ways that this can impact your life. So that means we sort of, are really ready to help if you're ready to accept help. But um, it, I know it's really hard. I know it's hard. And I just commend, I just I just uh, tell everybody who contacts me, you know, you've done so well contacting, making contact with me. This is such a difficult thing to admit. Love that. Jan, thank you so much. Your insight is so valuable and yeah, you're fab. Jan, if people want to find you <laughs> online, where can they do so? So uh, if you want to check me out on Instagram and Twitter, you can contact me on at stuff underscore ology or Facebook uh, stuffology consulting, or you can shoot me an email, uh, jan at stuffology.com.au. But come on over to the website and sign up for the newsletter. I post, I send that out. I don't use snail mail. I uh, send that out. That would be a disaster given your audience. Giving my audience <laughs> uh, paper? No. No. So, no, it is not a, a mail-out uh, ye olde style. It is your modern email uh, newsletter once a week, Sunday afternoons. Amazing. So take care. Thank you, Jan. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Do you want to be a de-hoarding darling? You can be now at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash darling. If you love the podcast and want a bit extra, you can finally sign up to subscribe. Members will get an exclusive monthly post with an additional top tip, some podcast and music recommendations and a personal update from me about how things are going. Find out the full details at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash darling. So my top tip this week is a clip from the ADHD for Smart Ass Women podcast. And host Tracy Otsuka is asking Casey Davis, who you may remember as a previous guest on this show, what her best advice for people with ADHD is. And this is great advice if you've got ADHD. And it's also pretty good advice, or a lot of it, if you don't. Have a listen. So what do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is? Mm. I definitely think really same approach that I think with Kirtas. I think having a, a strong foundation of moral neutrality, you know, your, your neurotype is not a moral failing. It's just the way that you are. And I think having a self-compassionate inner dialogue around the way that you are and knowing that it's okay 
and that you might need to do things differently. Being being willing to embrace adaptive imperfection. Being willing to embrace adaptive routines. Being re- willing, whenever it's possible, to say, you know, the way that I am is legitimate. And it's okay for me to change my environment to meet my needs. And there will be times or environments that you can't change. And that's when you try to develop new skills or you ask for accommodations. And at the end of the day, your neurotype is morally neutral. So think about how that can apply in your life. Okay, thank you for listening. And I will speak to you next time. Thank you for listening to the Overcome Compulsive Hoarding with That Hoarder podcast. You can find more online at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk. You can find me on Twitter at That Hoarder and on Facebook at Overcome Compulsive Hoarding with That Hoarder. To find out more about how you can support the podcast and the overall project, go to overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash support and do subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. There may be links in this podcast that earn me money. This doesn't come at any extra cost to you if you ever make a purchase through the links and it helps to support the future of the podcast. Where can they do so? I uh my um you can <laughs> brilliant thanks ever so much okay right let's go botox cosmetic out of botulinum toxin a fda approved for over 20 years so talk to your specialist to see if botox cosmetic is right for you for full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Getting professional support as a hoarder can make all the difference. Having somebody on your side who can help you to learn about yourself and make progress in your home is invaluable, but finding an affordable therapist can be a nightmare. Accessing therapy online gives you the option to find the right person who doesn't even have to be in the same country as you, never mind the same town or city. OnlineTherapy.com offers a weekly live session with a CBT therapist for individuals or couples. It offers unlimited messaging, worksheets, a journal, and even yoga and meditation videos to help you cope. I have a special link for you that will get you a discount at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash online therapy. As you know, I've had CBT, and two years later, I still use the realizations I had about myself as well as the skills I learned. Listeners tell me that you've started to use some of the skills I've shared on this podcast. CBT is a therapy with a broad evidence base that is widely used for a range of mental health difficulties, including hoarding. OnlineTherapy.com specializes in CBT, and if you're not happy with your therapist, 
you can change to a new one with the click of a button and prices start at $40 a week which if you've seen a therapist before you'll know is incredibly cost effective. What's more if you use my link you can get a whopping 20% off your first month. So sign up at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash online therapy and get 20% off your first month with your new online CBT therapist.